following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, have you ever been in a room with a king or a queen, maybe the president of the United States, a great emperor or a sheikh or something like that? Well, I haven't. <laughs> but from what I understand, when someone like that enters a room, everybody stands up and gives a visible sign of honor to that person, like a, a salute or, or a curtsy or a bow or something like that. And if you were in a room and you weren't looking at the door and you saw everybody around you stand up and, and give that kind of sign to somebody who entered the room, you would know that somebody just came in who was worthy of honor and respect, either by station or by character, one way or the other. He's important, respected, and again, worthy of special honor. However, you wouldn't know who this person was until you looked at him or you heard his name, his identity, his title. All rise for the king is here. All stand, President so-and-so has entered the room. On well, the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel, the King of Kings arrives in the room, so to speak. And that room is a humble uh, stall, a manger stall. And he comes in humility. His royal lineage is laid out before us. He's the son of David, son of Abraham. And he's graded by the Magi with honor and adoration. Indeed, we do hear his name and his royal title. So in that sense, we know who he is. This is Jesus the Christ. Son of David, son of Abraham. But the fullness of his identity, his beauty, his full worth and importance to us, his significance to his people, Israel, has yet to be unfolded for us. We know that he's the Messiah. He is the Christ, God's anointed one, come to save his people from their sin, even very God of very God, incarnate, born of the virgin. And as grand and as glorious as these truths are, they're really just the outlines of who he is. Well, beginning this week, Matthew gives us more detail. He begins coloring in the outline for us. We begin truly to know the identity of this Savior and king, this very important person. So what I seek to show you today, uh, drawing from this passage and these three, uh, these three Old Testament prophecies that are mentioned to us in the passage, is that Christ Jesus identifies with us in desperation, sorrow, and obscurity, or insignificance, to save us from our sins. We know he's come to save, and here this week we'll see that Christ Jesus identifies with us in desperation, sorrow, and obscurity to do that work, to save us from our sins. So we'll look at that under three headings, breaking down the passage again according to those three prophecies. Verses 13 to 15, uh, Christ Jesus, our Savior, identifies with us in desperation. And then verses 16 to 18, Christ Jesus 
our Savior identifies with us in sorrow. And then finally, verses 19 to 23, Christ Jesus, our Savior, identifies with us in obscurity. Desperation, sorrow, and obscurity. It's a happy sermon this morning, isn't it? First, let's look at verses 13 to 15. Jesus, our Savior, identifies with us in our desperation. First, we see how he identifies with us, but then we see how he saves us from these things. In verse 13, it says, Now when they, again, the Magi, had gone, behold, an an- the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. This opens up our passage with urgent desperation, doesn't it? Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, they're in a desperate situation. This isn't a little thing. We already know this. We know this from before when Herod's trying to spin a web of of deceit and trickery, trying to get the Magi to give him information so that he can crush his rival, even lying to the Magi, saying he wanted to worship this Jesus. But... We're not told that the Magi knew that. We're not told that Joseph knew that that was the case. Maybe they had an inkling because they were wise men, but it wasn't until the angel of the Lord warned them in a dream that they withdrew to get out of Herod's way. And the same thing happens here with Joseph. And the situation is clear. The angel's message to Joseph is clear. Herod the Great, the king of this land, is about to seek the child to destroy him. Herod's purpose couldn't be any clearer. The angel's message comes as the very word of God to Joseph, and he takes it that way. And so we shouldn't be surprised by Joseph's response. What do we know about this man already? From a couple of weeks ago, the last time the angel spoke to him, he had a complete change of heart. And he obeyed God and took up the charge of being the protector of this infant child, this infant Christ, the Lord Jesus. So we already know him to be a faithful man. He's spiritually perceptive and sensitive to God's word. And he's obedient to God's word as well and to his commands. As Jesus' earthly father and caretaker, he's responsible for protecting him. He gladly takes up that work. And he shows us just how vulnerable Jesus is. See, Joseph is no soldier or general or king himself. He's a humble carpenter from a backwater town called Nazareth, which we'll see later in the passage. But in this desperate situation, Jesus Christ identifies with each of us who were once utterly dependent on human protection from our parents. We have a number of infants in our midst. How how would they fare without our care? They would not do very well. And the same was true for our Lord. Though he was very God of very God, yet he came and submitted himself to all the frailties of our human condition. And in this context of humiliation and vulnerability, then, we see God's providential protection of Jesus. Just as he gives us our children to care for them and to provide for them, so God gave Jesus into the care of of Joseph and Mary, and it was God who did that. It was God in control of all of it. And in so doing, he gives protection not only of this infant child, but brothers and sisters, he safeguards our interest in him and our well-being. Because who is this Jesus? He's our Savior, come into the world to save us from our sins. 
you know, America just supposedly closed up a war in Afghanistan that lasted 20 years. But whether it be the war in Afghanistan or World War II or World War I, when we consider our boys fighting far away across many oceans and seas and foreign lands, we can claim as our own, even from far away, any gains, any um, breaks, any, um, any success that they have because they're fighting on our behalf. You see, our interest is wrapped up in them even though they're far away from us. By the same token, then, our interest is wrapped up in this infant Jesus, in his care and protection. And so in God securing his protection, God secures ours as well. But another thing that I wish to put before you here is that opposition from the world whether it be murderous intent like Herod's or something else entirely, opposition from the world is an occasion for reliance on God. You see, if you face persecution yourself or social rejection for being a Christian, either within your family or in the workplace or in your neighborhood, um, either for your faith or for your values as you seek to live them out in a faithful way, take these instances of opposition as an occasion or opportunity to rely on God. This is from God himself. And surely Joseph and Mary are relying upon him, and so is the infant Jesus, relying on his providential care, identifying with us in our desperation. Well, he doesn't merely identify us with, uh, with us in this desperation, but he saves us from it. Look at verses 14 and 15. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this takes some explanation because there's an Old Testament citation here. Verse 14 describes for us Joseph's immediate actions in response to the angel's message. You got to get this, boys and girls in particular. He does not delay. He gets a word from the Father to do such and such, and what does he do? He does such and such right away, fully, quickly, without any complaining, even joyfully, if we can put it that way. That very night, we're told, under cover of darkness, Joseph gets up, takes the child and his mother, and withdraws to Egypt. The interesting thing here is that just as the Magi withdrew from danger in verses 12 and 13, so Joseph withdraws from danger in verse 14. The angel's message, Joseph's prompt and faithful obedience then, and the, the sojourn or with the withdrawing and the living, residing in Egypt for a period of time, it all sets up Christ's fulfillment of the words drawn here from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, which says, out of Egypt have I called my son. Interestingly, why didn't God send his angel to tell Joseph to go with the Magi? Think about that. He probably left right after they left. He would have had a whole group of people to protect him. They obviously get away safely. Why does God tell him to go to Egypt? This is where the Hosea passage comes in. The reference to Hosea 11 as being fulfilled in Jesus' life tells us something about who Jesus is as Savior. It tells us something about the nature even of his saving work, what he has come to do then. 
Hosea 11, if, if we looked at it, and we don't really have time to dig into each of the Old Testament passages cited today, so we have to be somewhat selective. But if we did look at it, we would see it's not a prediction. It's not that kind of prophecy. It's actually more of an explanation of something that's already happened. It's a prophetic description or explanation of the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt under Moses and how this is going to be repeated in some sense in the return from exile to Babylon later. They came up out of Egypt as God's beloved son, as his children, his family. And in relating that prophetic um, message to Jesus and making that connection for us, Matthew is telling us that the nation of Israel under Moses is a type or a shadow of Jesus Christ himself. You see, his life is then a fulfillment of what one commentator calls fact prophecy. You have word prophecy, such and such will happen, and you have fact prophecy, such and such did happen, anticipating something about Jesus Christ. These events, the Exodus in particular, then point to Jesus. That's what Matthew is drawing for us. In other words, because Christ will be called out of Egypt as the Son of God, we know him then to be the Son of God. It's another proof of who he is. So when we call Jesus the Son of God, we're not just making something up out of thin air. It's rooted in every aspect of his life. He does not merely act out the Israelites' exodus journey, but he, in his life, identifies with them and then fulfills the purpose of their original journey and even of their original calling out of the land of death into the promised land of life. Just as he identifies with his people, with us, in our desperation, so too does he then save us from that desperation, bringing us out of the land of slavery and bondage. My friends, do you ever feel desperate when you're facing off against your sins? When, When the thoughts cross your mind that you know shouldn't be there, or when the words cross your lips that you know are wicked and violent to those whom you love. Perhaps you cry out in the words of Psalm 102, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. God has, in his Son, granted you assurance of providential care in his Son. He's gracious. He's faithful to save, even to order all things by his providence such that you will be delivered from that desperation and crisis of sin. And you can say then in David's words from Psalm 103, the very next psalm, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness. Again, that steadfast love and compassion who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Jesus saves us from our desperation. He leads forth a new exodus, as it were. And we'll see how he does that in weeks to come. 
So we've considered how Jesus, our Savior, then identifies with us in our desperation, identifying and saving from. Well, he also identifies with us in our sorrow. As our Savior, he identifies with us in our sorrow. Look at verses 16 to 18 with me. First, we'll consider how Jesus identifies with us in sorrow, then see how he saves us from it. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Verse 15 dropped us kind of up until the death of Herod. And so verse 16 brings us back to that time before the death of this wicked man. In the wake of the Magi's and Joseph's respective flights out of danger, here we are. After some time, it probably didn't take very long, because remember from last week, Bethlehem's only about a two-hour walk from Jerusalem. It's not far away at all. But after some time, Herod realizes the Magi are not coming back. They're not going to report to him, as he asks them to do. And he takes himself to have been played by the Magi. If I was translating this, I would have said it, Then when Herod saw that he had been played by the Magi, they played a trick on him. He lashes out then, like a rabid dog backed into a corner, like a rattlesnake uh, to snap. He lashes out, and what does he do? This is one of the most heart-rending and infamous tragedies in all of Scripture. It's a theme of many moving paintings. And... um, and it has been the cause of much sorrow, he orders, and the way the Greek says, it, it makes him to be the agent of this. He slays, orders the killing, the merciless slaughter of any potential rival in Bethlehem. That is, little baby boys, ages two years old and under. Pretty much any kid, any boy under the age of three So he takes what information he did have from the Magi, and then he executes these boys, both in Bethlehem and the surrounding countryside. I cannot fathom, cannot fathom the sorrow felt in that town. Some, uh, the Ethiopian church, the ancient Ethiopic church, so to speak, came up with a crazy number of like 15,000 boys. That is almost certainly way overblown. There weren't even really that many people living in the area, much less boys under the age of three, I think it's more likely somewhere between a dozen to 30. But still, even if just one had been taken that way, it caused sorrow to a whole community, much less a whole group of little boys. So it's no surprise this is an occasion for great sorrow in Bethlehem, but I want you to notice that Matthew puts it right in the middle of the story of Jesus' infancy. You might think, what does this have to do with Jesus? Jesus left. He's not even there. But though he escaped that slaughter in the providential care of God, yet he stepped into it. Remember, he is eternal God the Son. He volunteered for this, knowing exactly, full well, what was going to take place. So he stepped into this sorrow, into this sorrowful situation, and thereby identified with us and even the most heartbreaking sorrows of this life. The loss of children, the death of loved ones, these things that strike right at the heart of who we are. He identifies with us in that very sorrow. 
In this bloody deed, Herod now continues the great conflict between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, begun in Genesis chapter 3.15. Uh, the seed of the woman shall crush his head, but the seed of the serpent shall bruise his heel. This conflict, it's run through Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. It's run through Pharaoh and the Israelites. Remember, Pharaoh orders something very similar in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. I've already mentioned at the beginning of this service, Doeg the Edomite with the priests of God slaying these faithful priests in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Haman and the Jews in the book of Esther. Remember, Haman's upset at Mordecai and so convinces the emperor of Persia to order the execution of all the Jews in all his lands. That's the drama of Esther. And then Revelation chapter 12 gives us the, the very colorful image of a dragon seeking to consume the child born to a woman. We could keep going. We could multiply examples. But we need, especially at this point, to relate Herod to Pharaoh. Because that's where most of the similarity is. His evil deeds here cause sorrow that will be resolved then only by a great deliverance or exodus. But before we proceed, I want us to consider the delusional sin of self-centeredness and wrath in the evil deeds of Herod. Herod the Great was a wicked man. This is proven in his response to not getting his way. He did not get what he wanted, so he kills a bunch of people. Well, what about you? How do you handle disappointment, frustration? How do you react when you don't get your way? Do you rail against your husband or your wife? Do you take it out on your kids? Do you lash out at your brothers and your sisters at home? Do you grumble against your boss or against other authorities? In other words, do you feel entitled to getting your way like you're some sort of king, like you live at the center of the universe and everything revolves around you, and so if you don't get your way, something must be terribly wrong? That's Herod's mentality. My friend, you may not shed blood. You might not have an army to command to go uh, take the lives of your enemies. But such responses as I've described that are very common in your home and in my home, in our workplaces, even in the church, these responses to not getting your way are very much like Herod's evil deeds. They are born out of a delusion, the delusional sin of self-centeredness and wrath. You must repent from such wickedness. But here it is. If you turn to Christ, you will find then that He offers hope out of sorrow and out of sin. He brings truth and light to cast out our delusions of self-centeredness and grandeur. He indeed saves us from sorrow. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. Verse 17 introduces a specific prophecy spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Who spoke it? The Lord. He's the ultimate agent, but Jeremiah is the instrument. And he says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. We read the whole passage, but Matthew cites only verse 15 here. This verse describes the bitter weeping, the sorrow with which Jesus identifies with us. But the broader context of that passage, what we read together in our Old Testament reading, shows us the hope that is just over, just on the other side of the event horizon here. 
Beyond this night of mourning and weeping and sorrow comes the light of hope. And I, that's what Matthew's getting at. He continues in verse 16, as we've already read, Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children re will return to their own territory. In Jeremiah's context, the situation was, was exile, violent removal from the land, but then promise of restoration to the land in subsequent generations in the future. But in Matthew's gospel, that same message of sorrow turned into joy, mourning, in fact, the darkest mourning we can imagine, the brutal slaughter of innocent children, then turned into great uh, deliverance and life in God's presence. The occasion of the slaughter is cast here by Matthew as a kind of tragic exile that immediately anticipates, comes before God's deliverance of his people, which is then seen accomplished not just in Christ's return out of Egypt, but more fully in Christ's resurrection. It's important to make this connection. Paul, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and following uh, this. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. And I think this could comfort the hearts of any of us who have lost loved ones. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's ways are far beyond us. We simply cannot comprehend them. However, his purposes, all terminating on the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ into glory, his purposes they are altogether good for us, for his people. They bring great glory to himself. Consider that even in the resurrection, as victor over death, Jesus is the avenger of slaughtered innocents. Those who were slaughtered in Egypt under Pharaoh, those who were slaughtered in Bethlehem under Herod. Through Jesus Christ, God will redeem them, lead them in a new exodus, even from the bloody grave prepared for them, even from perhaps the peaceful graves prepared for us at the end of our lives. You know, our, our comfort then in tragedy and distress comes only from the promise here of God's purposes of redemption and resurrection. From the depths of woe, he's heard our cries. He will redeem us, his people, from all our iniquities that lead to death and exile and separation from him. He will indeed deliver us from all his and our enemies, death at the head, who seek and sometimes seem to bring about our destruction. This is the great hope of martyrs. This is what gives us 
steel in our spines and courage to withstand the evil day. Indeed, Christ came to save us, not only from desperation, but also from sorrow. Sorrow pictured here in the death of innocent children. Moving on through our passage, Jesus, our Savior, identifies with us, not just in desperation and sorrow, but in obscurity, in insignificance. He identifies with us in our obscurity, looking at verses 19 and 20. Now we flash forward, but when Herod died, this perhaps was a few months or a couple of years, we don't know how long, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Returns to the perspective of Joseph after the death of Herod. By the way, the historian Josephus tells us that Herod suffered a brutal and disgusting death from an unspeakably horrible physical disease. I won't even describe it for you. It is nasty. But the grammar here in, um, in verse uh, 19 and 20 is identical to verse 13. So we know we've entered into a new chapter, as it were, in Joseph's life and Jesus' life. Now the angel instructs Joseph not to flee, but to go. He says simply go. There's immediacy. He's supposed to go now because it's been, the, the event has come to pass. Herod's gone. But there's not the same fever pitch of urgency. He can prepare a little bit more. But the angel doesn't leave it at that. I, I love how the angel speaks to him. In God's words to Joseph here, he, he gives an explanation. Or he gives a justification for his directions at the end of verse 20. His point, notice he doesn't mention Herod's name specifically. His point in not mentioning Herod directly here, and even taking the focus off Herod by saying, those who sought, uh, is to emphasize that the danger has passed. By the end of verse 20, Jesus is set now on a course to a remote town in the north of Israel, in the land of Galilee, where he will live in relative obscurity, an insignificant life, until his public ministry commences. And in this movement out of Egypt and up to Galilee, Christ identifies with his people, the lowly, the humble, the obscure of this world. He doesn't return to Jerusalem or even to Bethlehem. He returns to some backwoods town. God is sovereign over the course and the, of nature, over the affairs of men, but he's also abundantly gracious. And we see that in the angel's speech, not only here, but in each of his speeches to Joseph. And this is, uh, this is the last one that we have in Matthew's gospel. God, when he speaks to us, he comes and he speaks with clarity. He considers our capacities as mere men. Notice, he doesn't throw Joseph into wild ecstasies or overwhelming visions. Nothing even as grand as what he put to Daniel and Ezekiel. He simply directs him. But then he gives him an explanation. He gives him a rationale. He's very gracious in doing that. And in doing so, he not only um, forces, he doesn't simply force Joseph's will to obedience, but he, he brings it along. He inclines his will to obedience. He does the same for us. 
He explains why it is he wants us to do what he commands us to do. His directions are almost always like this. The fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days might be long in the land which the Lord thy God is giving thee. Consider the Beatitudes. We'll get there in a little while, but blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they shall see the face of God. And so on. Our larger catechism calls these express promises. The rationales, the reasons that God gives for our obedience. Give heed to these reasons. Children especially, I know you frequently want to ask your parents, why? Why do I have to do that? And sometimes we say, either out of exasperation or what, we say, because I said so. Well, God is much more gracious than us. He actually gives us reasons, so pay attention to them. But in this movement, as I said, Jesus identifies with the obscurity of his people, but then he saves them from it. Look at verses 21 through 23 with me. So Joseph got up, took the child and the mother and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, that is Judea. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Verse 21, like verse 14, recounts Joseph's faithful obedience. But unlike verse 14, Matthew does not describe Joseph as withdrawing. He's not fleeing danger this time. He's coming to Israel because the danger has passed. But when he gets there, he hears this terrifying report about the ruler what the Romans called ethnarch. They didn't call him a king, interestingly enough, but the ruler in Judea, where we assume Joseph intended to settle. After Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided among several of his sons, and Archelaus was a savage brute. And the Roman authorities ultimately exiled him to Gaul, which is modern-day France. In Galilee, however, the governor which was much less heavy-handed, so Joseph departs to his old stomping grounds. Interesting historical note, Herod was the last king to reign over Israel. And who was born in his reign? Jesus, the everlasting king of Israel. Well, specifically here, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus don't just settle in Galilee. They settle in a little town called Nazareth. This is the first time that Matthew mentions Nazareth, but we know from Luke's gospel that this is Joseph and Mary's hometown. And Matthew tells us the prophetic, and the theological significance, then, of Nazareth. He makes an allusion to something spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This isn't a direct quotation, like what we had from Hosea and Jeremiah. In fact, and this is one of the difficulties, Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. Not one place. So how do we understand this statement? First, we need to understand what little standing, what little reputation Nazareth had in its day. In John 1:46, Nathaniel, who would become a disciple of Jesus, hears that Jesus is of Nazareth, and his first response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like saying you're from, I don't know, Upper Darby. Can anything good come out of Upper Darby? That's where I'm from. Second, consider how the term Nazarene was made then into an insult, a pejorative in the early history of the church. After the resurrection of Christ and growth of the church, early Jewish opponents of Christianity referred to the church as the sect of the Nazarenes. We see that in Acts chapter 24. 
Less than 300 years later, in the 5th century, the ancient uh, biblical translator and historian Jerome reports that some Jewish communities in their synagogues prayed for the destruction specifically of the Nazarenes, that is, the church. To be a Nazarene in Jewish estimation is to be demeaned, outcast, reviled, rejected of men, and scorned. In short, to be a Nazarene is to suffer great humiliation before your countrymen, before those whom you would otherwise call brothers. Matthew's not quoting a particular prophecy. It doesn't appear in the Old Testament. Rather, what he's doing here, and this is important, he is showing us He's giving an explanation, showing us that because Jesus lived in a city called Nazareth, he would be called a Nazarene to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophets, namely that he would be despised and rejected of men and cast out. The prophets foretold for us in many points, and just in general, that the Messiah would be despised by his countrymen. Psalm 22, 6 the words are put in his mouth. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. The words of the Messiah. Jesus quotes that psalm on the cross. In Isaiah 49, 7, we read, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Whom has he chosen? The Messiah. What is this Messiah? The despised one. Prophesied in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 3, describes this despised one in words that I think many of us will recognize. One who will receive the honor of kings was despised and forsaken of men. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Daniel predicts in Daniel chapter 9 that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's a direct quote. God placed Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in Nazareth so that Jesus would live in what our catechisms call a low condition. In fulfillment of these messianic prophecies. That's what Matthew's getting at. But so too do all those who, who follow Jesus follow him in this low condition, in his poverty, his ill repute, his social shame. There is a cost to following Jesus. And when you're discouraged, when you're beat down, particularly when you're suffering persecution in some way, shape, or form for your faith and values, remember why Jesus submitted himself to the miseries of this life. Why he was called a Nazarene. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, as we sang, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In similar fashion, Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of son. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He came to bring us a gospel of redemption from our miseries, even of life everlasting, 
and not simply as servants of God, though how glorious that would be, but as sons in God's kingdom. This is the glorious news that Matthew brings us as an evangelist. Matthew here has announced the arrival of someone very important, and his name is King Jesus. He's entered the room. And the amazing thing about this great king is that he has not entered our room wearing a glistening crown or a heavy red robe or anything like that. Rather, he's entered our room, our space, our lives, wearing our garments of human distress and humiliation. Christ Jesus identifies with us in desperation, sorrow, and obscurity to save us from our sins. And in identifying with us in these ways, Christ fulfills the prophesied redemption from sin, the prophesied exodus foretold in Old Testament scriptures. He's the Messiah of the Jews, and as we have discussed in weeks past, also the hope of nations. You've seen how Joseph, the Magi, Herod, chief priests, scribes, how they've all responded to the arrival of the king in different ways. But now Matthew is beginning to fill in the description of his identity for us to really show us who he is. And in our text this morning, have you taken a close look then? Have you turned your gaze to this king who's entered the room? What do you see? Do you not see that he has come for you, his people, That he's aligned himself with you, his needy, his humble church. He's holy, he's true, he's full of mercy, full of grace for sinners. This is Matthew's point. He comes to bring redemption. He humbled himself, entrusted himself to the often cloudy, but always true and sure providential care of God to make known his salvation to all the world, to secure for us redemption to present his people to God in the beauty of holiness. The name of our king is Jesus. That's his identity, for he has come to save his people from their sins. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.